Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Well, good morning, North Sound. So good to see you all this morning, and a happy Father's Day to you all. Uh, We have a uh, Rocky Road candy bar for all of the guys today. Please pick it up on your way out, and you're going to need it because it's Father's Day, and there is uh, no Club Grub today, so... And ladies, if you're just really too hungry and you can't make it home, you probably should grab, grab one as well. I think there are lots uh, back there. Um, again, it's so great to, uh, to have you here. Um, I just want to take a moment to address the folks that are watching online. We have uh, had so many changes since the beginning of COVID here at North Sound Church. So on March 1st, 2020, We had um, our last pre-COVID service at North Sound. And back in those days, um, we averaged about 350 people on Sunday morning. Uh, And uh, over the course of time, with sort of on-again, off-again services and masking and unmasking, um, we've had all kinds of changes. It's funny, this morning I was looking for a thumb drive because I bring my slides in, uh, and so I was going through my suit pockets to see if I had left my thumb drive in. And I think most of the jackets I found had a mask in them, and it's just a reminder uh, to me of what we've, we've been through, and it's not that long ago that we haven't uh, been masking in here as well. But what's happened at North Sound is that we have about a third or perhaps more of our congregation um, that is actually watching online. So somewhere typically between 100 and 150 on Sunday morning, um, views happen and we don't know who those folks are and we also don't know um, how many people are sort of in the room watching with you. So we would love it if you folks who are watching online would take a moment and send us an email and let us know kind of who you are. So we, as I say, about a third of our congregation is watching online. And so we would love to know if you are a regular North Sound person that's still just being careful, um, or if you're honest enough to say we love being part of the service in our pajamas, having coffee. Uh, or if you are uh, somewhat a, a ways from the church, either uh, a snowbird that hasn't come home yet or whatever, we would love to hear from you. Um, and then we'll, we may send out a, a survey that could be completed anonymously in terms of um, getting to know who you are. And one of the biggest reasons for that is being able to serve you better when consistently about a third of the congregation isn't in the room with us, we really want to know how we can uh, minister and be effective with you. So please take a moment and uh, drop us a note. Uh, You can either do it a hand note to the church office or you can email us at info at northsoundchurch.com. We would love to hear from you. Well, here endeth the uh, commercials, I guess. Um, And it's so good to see those of you that are here this morning to celebrate Father's Day um, with us. And again, the Rocky Road candy bars will be be great on on your way out today. We've been doing a series on the Bible. And this morning uh, in the first service, I had the congregation sing with me. And the, the best performers were the little ones, weren't they, Casey? They sang so good. 
I'm going to take a chance on you helping me out because it's going to be really bad if it's just me, okay? So if you know this song, sing it with me. The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Wow, you guys did good. Pastor Allen, I think we have more North Sound singers than we knew we had. They, they did good. And they memorized the words too, which I know you like. So that was great. That was great. So we are finishing up today talking about the Bible. Last week, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you for the context for this morning uh, to take some time and uh, do last week. Uh, when you have an opportunity to do so, because it kind of sets the stage. This week, we're going to pick up from last week. Last week was how to read the Bible. And today, we're going to continue by talking about the power of the Word, the power of the Bible in our lives. And so what today is going to be is kind of an application of what we talked about last week. We want to iterate or reiterate the fact that All of us, virtually, I think 100% of us, devotionally read the Bible in order to have the Lord speak to us. And in devotional reading, some of you are reading a Bible reading plan. Some of you are using um, the daily bread, which I notice we have in the lobby. You're welcome to pick one up. And uh, some of you may be following along online with someone that has a Bible reading plan. But the point is, is that reading the Bible is so important and we believe the Holy Spirit speaks to us when we simply open the Bible and read it with an open heart to allow the Bible to speak to us. What we introduced last week and what we're going to apply today is a way of looking at the Bible in order to study it, to go a little bit deeper in terms of understanding the passage. And it's so important for me to emphasize you don't just have to do this in order to get something from the Word. When we read the Bible under any circumstances, God's Holy Spirit is involved and speaks to us. But sometimes we want to go a little deeper and have a little more insight into the passage. And that's what we talked about last week. And then today, as I said, we are going to go ahead and apply that. We used two words. I'm wondering, before Liz puts the slide up, we talked about a a fancy word to describe um, understanding what the passage meant to the original listeners, and that's called exegesis. Yeah, thank you. That was great. And then we talked about how we take it across then from the 2,000 years from the original hearers, which is exegesis, to today and apply it to today. And that we call hermeneutics. Wow, you guys are good. So you proved my theory, which was if we use big words that you may or may not have heard before, you may actually remember them better than if we use the little words to describe it. So I hope you will remember these two. And today we're going to apply them to a specific scriptural text as we look together. Andrew read for us 1 Corinthians 13. And we're not going to have time to go through the entire passage, but I want to unpack 
using this methodology, um, a, uh, uh, just part of that passage. So in verse 4 it says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, the NIV Study Bible has a great definition of the kind of love that's being talked about here. And one of the things that I recommended last week is that if you don't have a study Bible, you might want to consider getting one. The NIV Study Bible is a great one. Um, in seminary, I use the RSV Study Bible, and now um, I tend to lean towards the ESV, the English Standard Version. I have that Study Bible, and if you can afford it, having more than one is great. But one of the wonderful blessings of today is that you can get online um, the different passages of Scripture from different versions. You can compare them uh, in a way that in the old days you had to buy all the Bibles to do it. Now you don't need to do that. So in checking simply without having to know Greek or Hebrew, wanting to know more about what does love mean in this passage, I look at the note of the NIV, the New International Version Study Bible, and it says, The Greek for this word indicates a selfless concern for the welfare of others that is not called forth by any quality of lovableness in the person loved, but is a product of the will to love in obedience to God's command. It is like Christ's love manifested on the cross. So when we look at this passage as a whole, 1 Corinthians 13, we are doing exegesis And the reason that Greek is mentioned and the reason that pastors talk about Greek from time to time is because the the New Testament was written in Greek for the most part. The language that was spoken for the most part was Aramaic, but when they actually wrote it down in the letters, it was in Greek. And so in order to do the exegesis, it's helpful if we can have some understanding of what the Greek meant. But here's the kicker. You don't have to study the Greek language or you don't have to know the Greek language in order to be able to access it for purposes of Bible study. And so we're going to explain that. But here for us, just an example of just looking at a study Bible, just looking at a note. And again, I'm going to come back to the note. You don't have to know Greek in order to get into what the passage actually meant for the people there. So here, I'm just going to read it again. The Greek for this word indicates selfless concern for the welfare of others that is not called forth by any quality of lovableness in the person loved, but is the product of the will to love in obedience to God's command and is like Christ's love manifested on the cross. So we have some understanding here of what it meant in the original context. It wasn't about romantic love or brotherly love or fatherly love. It was love lived in obedience to God's command and love even when the object is unlovely. You know, maternal love and paternal love can be explained in some ways by the, 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 the love of the child that just draws out of mom and dad or grandpa and grandma the love for that child. Last night we had Ethan and Thomas and when we have them overnight uh, grandma sleeps with Thomas and, and I have the privilege of being with Ethan. 
And you know how I talk about how marvelous it is to come over the hill in Edmonds and to see the Olympic range and what it does in terms of our spirituality, our relationship with God. And you know, it's, I, just, I just find it amazing to look at these little guys when they're sleeping. And in my case, Ethan. But I can just, I just, I just look at him and he's beautiful. And I love those little guys so much. And, and their, their beauty and their relationship draws it out of you. It's not hard to love children most of the time. <laughs> so, so it's important, I think, to understand, however, that what's being talked about here is not this kind of maternal love for which you love the child. It draws it out of you. It's not talking about romantic love where the object of your love draws your love out of you towards them. You can't explain the kind of love that's being talked about here in terms of the attractiveness of the object. Agape love does not so much appeal to the loveliness of the object. It's a love that begins with obedience to God. Share that one more time. It's not so much an appeal to the loveliness of the object. It's a love that begins with obedience to God. So this gives us some broader based exegesis. So we now understand that there were different words for love for first century people. And the love that was particularly described here is agape love. And it's a love that isn't drawn out by the attractiveness of the object but in fact, it's a love that comes through a relationship with God and essentially a command to love, a responsibility to love. So now we shift a bit and we look at hermeneutics or the interpretation, or now that we know what it meant there, we bring it across the centuries and we begin to apply it today in terms of what it means for us. God has designed us from the very beginning, to give and receive love. In our earliest months of life, we respond to the love of parents. The Scientific American wrote an article back, contained an article back in 2010 that talks about what happens when this love is absent. They say many children who have not had ample physical and emotional attention are at higher risk for behavioral, emotional, and social problems as they grow up. These trends point to the lasting effects of early infancy environments and the changes that the brain undergoes during that period. Below the surface, some children from deprived surroundings, such as orphanages, have vastly different hormone levels than their parents' raised peers even beyond the baby years. For instance, in Romania in the 1980s, by ages 6 to 12, Levels of the stress hormone cortisol were much higher in children who had lived in orphanages for more than eight months than in those who were adopted at or before the age of four months. So there are a number of deficits that are recorded for children who are not loved immediately in infancy. I know that some of the folks at North Sound have volunteered Um, to go to places where crack babies or babies that have been taken from their mothers for their safety, um, where they hold, simply hold the child. Uh, They just simply hold and love the child and the physical touch and the care is communicated to that child that someone cares for them, that there is love that is being passed on. 
God has designed us for love. And some of us experience romantic love. The Greek word is eros. Some of us experience familial love or friendship love. The Greek word is phileo. But here in this place, we have the very specific articulation of the word agape for love, which spells out in intimate detail what love looks like. And so we're going to unpack two or three of the number of love is expressions that we looked at together um, as we attempt to learn about exegesis, what did it mean for them, and hermeneutics, what does it mean for us. So the first one is true love is patient. The Greek word there is macrothumio, and you don't need to know Greek to know that that's the word that's there. So if you're doing a Bible study, there's an app that you can get called the Interlinear Bible. And you just download it onto your phone, and the Interlinear Bible has the English on one line, and below it, it has the Greek. And so it has the Greek um, in Greek alphabet, but it also has it anglicized. So you can know that in that passage, the word that corresponds to, to patient is macrothumio. Well, what can you do with that? Well, that can help you to get into some other resources that will help you to be able to understand. One of the other things that's helpful knowing that is to also have access to other forms of, or excuse me, other versions of the scripture. So uh, it's helpful when you're studying a passage and going a little different, deeper to see what does the NIV say or the ESV or the King James Version. Most of us learned, most of us, if you're my age and if you grew up in the church, you memorize the King James Version, right? You, you, that's kind of what we were nurtured on. But the interesting thing is that the King James Version still sometimes applies, I think, better than other versions. And on this one, I absolutely love the King James Version translation of love is patient. So the King James Version uses charity for love. Charity back in 1612 must have meant love when the King James Version was translated. But here's what they say that is so good. The King James Version of true love is patience is charity suffers long. (laughs) charity suffers long. Isn't that beautiful? That is so beautiful. Yesterday, Barb and I were on the freeway, and um, I'm not proud of this. I'm not proud of this, but sometimes I struggle with patience, and one of the places where that comes out is on the freeway. It's It's sort of bad, but you know what really drives me nuts on the freeway is people that drive slow in the fast lane. I, you can see I've been pulling my hair out. Um, but poor Barb, she, she tries to get me to calm down when I'm driving. But I've, I've driven in Europe on the Autobahn in Germany. And people over there understand how to drive. And they get in the right-hand lane unless they're going. And if they're hauling... They're in the left-hand lane, but nobody is going slow in the left-hand lane. They're all over on the right. And here, you'll be driving down the freeway. You'll have your, your cruise control set, right? And you come along, and some, sometimes I use the I word. It's really bad. Some I word person 
is in the left lane, and I, you know, and it's like, okay, so now what? Well, you have to go off your cruise control, and you have to wait for them to, you know, do this, and then eventually they get over, and or not. Um, it, it's. I find that very frustrating, and I'm not proud of it because it says here that true love is patient. It's long. Suffering Isn't that what patience is? No matter what it is, a line in the store, waiting to get an MRI, it doesn't matter what it is, it's long suffering. It's not just suffering acutely and in a moment. When we don't have patience, we're suffering long over a long period of time. The scripture here says that it's always used in reference to people or God in his relationship with us. And sometimes, as I said, different translations help us understand better. Well, what about hermeneutics then? How do we apply this? Well, we've kind of begun the application talking about driving on the freeway, but it's a a fairly uh, straightforward application in terms of long-suffering. There is a contemporary or not-so-contemporary illustration that I think is beautiful. It actually goes back 150 years to the time of Abraham Lincoln. And some of you may not be familiar with this, but Lincoln Lincoln was treated by contempt, terrible contempt. No one treated him worse than Edwin Stanton. Edwin Stanton called him a low, cunning clown. He nicknamed him the original gorilla and said that Du Chalou was a fool to wander about Africa trying to capture a gorilla when he could have found one so easily in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln said nothing. He made Stanton, when he became president, his war minister because he was the best man for the job and he treated him with every courtesy. The years wore on. The night came when the assassin's bullet murdered Lincoln in the theater In the little room to which the president's body was taken stood that same Stanton, and looking down on Lincoln's silent face, he said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. The patience of love had conquered in the end. The next expression that we have here is that true love is kind. True love is kind. The Greek word, again, is, an access- is accessible through an app. In this case, it's krestiumai, which, which translated in the, from the original Greek means love is kind. <laughs> there, there, are, there are times when Greek to English isn't not particularly insightful, and this is one of those where it, it means in Greek what it means in English. But it's used of the gracious attitude of God towards sinners. It's used of the gracious attitude of God towards sinners, and it describes the compassion of Jesus. So what about the hermeneutics, if that's the exegesis? Well, if this word word originally refers to the compassion of Jesus, our goal is to be like Jesus What does that mean for us today? Well, I do this program with Mark uh, Holland um, that is on the radio and also a podcast called Pastors Forum. And by the way, Jack is going to be, I don't know what date we settled on Jack, but Jack and I are going to have fun. You may remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Robin talked to him about apologetics. We're going to talk about apologetics for that podcast as well. But I was doing a little research and I came across 
an article that identified, it had an interesting title. It said, 10 things Christians should do before talking about politics. Well, in this season in which we're in, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And we don't have time this morning for all of them, but I'm going to share with you six through nine. And uh, this, is, uh, this is what uh, Brad Bridges suggested for things that Christians should do before talking about politics. Number six, what does it mean to love your neighbor during a political election year, a political event, while meeting with your church, while at a family event? What does it mean to love your neighbor in those circumstances? Number seven, what impact would the church have on the world in four, eight, or 12 years if it lived out what Jesus, Paul, and the others preached? The significance, of course, of four, eight, and 12 years are our elections, and what impact would it have if we lived out what Jesus said? Number eight, how much time do you spend catching up on the latest political commentary and news? How does this compare to your time you spend reading the Bible, serving others, or in prayer? That's a bit of an ouch for some of us, I think. And then, how many close friends do you have that vote opposite of you? How many close friends do you have that vote opposite of you? And what's driving this? This week I read a report from a pollster that described the dearth of cross-party relationships. She wrote, for around one-third of Democrats, they reported having no close friends of the other party. This isn't just confined to young people or the political left. Republicans who consider themselves Trump supporters, first and foremost, are among the most likely to say they have zero close friends with whom they disagree. So the question for us is, no matter what we think of someone's politics, how do we hope to share with them the kindness of the love of God if we have no relationship with them? How do you share God's love with someone with whom you have no relationship? One of the things that has blessed me has been in 25 years in the Navy was it was a, it was a place where I was regularly engaged with unchurched people. And it was a blessing because as a pastor in the church, of course, I'm spending most of my time with church people. And then more recently, for about six years now, I've been on the board of the Foundation for Edmond School District. In fact, this last week, about 10 days ago, we actually had our first board meeting in two years here at North Sound Church in the lobby. And, and I'm probably the most conservative person on the, uh, certainly one of the most conservative people on the board. Um, But what I found is that it's very helpful for me to be in an environment where I'm working with people who see things differently than me, but we're working for the common good with people of goodwill. And and the people, other people on the board, many of them would be in a very different place politically. But we can laugh and joke and have a good time together while we're seeing that children in the Edmond School District get fed that they get scholarships, that they have things in their classroom that we can help financially with. Everybody that is on the board, regardless of political persuasion, wants to see children be able to take advantage of opportunities by having enough food in their tummy 
and having the resources they need to have a successful education. I want to encourage you, as I am encouraging our staff and elders, to consider being involved in an organization or uh, relationships with people who see things differently than you do. Not because they're right or you're right, but because the only way we're going to win people for Jesus really is in the context of relationships. And if we have zero relationships with people that see things differently than us, how can we hope to share the good news of Christ with them? We need to listen. We need to learn. As Covey says, we need to seek first to understand before being understood. G.K. Chesterton said something that it's been a profound comment that has stayed with me. Speaking of human beings, speaking of humanity, he says, we are all in the same boat on a stormy sea. We owe each other such a terrible loyalty. As human beings, we're all in the same boat of life in a stormy sea of life. And we owe everyone a terrible loyalty. Well, I'm sorry that in the interest of time, we need to jump over other expressions of love. Uh, We're going to finish up with the last one, which is love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. So the exegesis of this passage is the Greek term that, again, you can discover with a concordance. And the Greek term uh, suggests to us that this is an accounting term. So this has to do in the first century with accounting and the keeping of a ledger. And the, the picture that we have here is that, is that on this ledger that um, someone is keeping track on a ledger of every way that they have been hurt. Okay. It's funny, we have a number of uh, accountants and accounting folks at church. Um, They're not always known for being the most outgoing. Um, Sometimes they are, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not being, um, Barbara, I am not being critical of accountants here. I just want you to know that, and and Deb and others of you that are here. But it was funny, Neil in the first, Neil um, was in the first service sitting uh, at the back where Sean and Jen are, and I And we had the greeting time, and Neil just stood there in the back. He's a retired accountant. And I said, Neil, you're supposed to be out working the crowd. (laughs) And we we both had a good laugh about him working the crowd. Um, But but in the the break between services, some of you know um, Terry and Joyce. And uh, Terry is a, is a board member of the University of Washington Medical Center and spent his career in accounting. Um, and he said the difference it, within their realm, the difference between uh, a, a, an outgoing accountant uh, uh, and one that is not is that an outgoing accountant will look at your shoes while he talks to you rather than his own. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was pretty good. Barbara, you can give me the business and Deb afterwards if you need to for that. Anyway, the, the point of all of this is not to diss accountants who are wonderful people. Right, Jack? Yep, and so, and, and people who do spreadsheets, they're wonderful people too. But um, the point of all of this is just that in this context, 
The picture here regarding keeping no records of wrong is that there are people from an accounting perspective that are totaling up in their mind what other people have done with them and they carry that. There's a story of a Polynesian culture that said that within the Polynesian, this particular Polynesian culture, the people actually hang objects that remind them of their hatred for their enemies. And, and I thought about that and I thought, you know what, when, when we find ourselves in that circumstance where that's the way that, that we feel, essentially what we do, essentially what we do is that we do that in our mind. We hang things in our mind that remind us of the hurts that we have received from other people. We have a ledger, but the ledger is in here. Some time ago, as we shift to hermeneutics here, to a contemporary application, some time ago during our staff devotional time, I asked each person to go around the, the table and to share someone that they felt best exemplified, 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the staff members said that uh, she thought about her father, but not because as she grew up that he exemplified this, but in fact he did not. Her father, in fact, was a, something of a hard man. He didn't have much joy. He was stern. He wasn't one who spent much time with his children. He would not have qualified under 1 Corinthians 13. But she related that later in life he had a serious illness, and the serious illness changed him. It changed his heart. And God began to do a great work in his character. And he not only softened and mellowed, but he began to develop the character of the people that are described here, of those who exhibit love. The staff member said that before her dad passed on, he fully exhibited the character of one who kept no record of wrongs. She can't imagine him not forgiving anyone. Some of you are familiar with the author Malcolm Gladwell, wrote a number of a great books, one of them called Outliers. And in Outliers, he tells the story of his mom who wrote a book called Brown Face, Big Master. The brown face was herself and the big master was God. Her husband was white and she was Jamaican. And when Malcolm's older brother was still a baby, they moved to London. They couldn't find a place in central London. So they found a place in the suburbs. But the day after they moved in, the landlady came to Malcolm's dad in a rage and demanded that they move out. You didn't tell me your wife was Jamaican, she said. In the book, Malcolm's mom comes to terms with her faith in this terrible humiliation. As she works through this seeming injustice, she's reminded of the society that she grew up in in Jamaica where Lighter colored Jamaicans were regarded more highly than those that were of darker complexion. She came to terms with her ability to forgive the white lady as she realized her own sin. She said, I complained to God in so many words. Here I was, the wounded representative of the Negro race in our struggle to be accounted free and equal with the dominating whites. And God was not amused. My prayer did not ring true with him. I would try again. And then God said, have you not done the same thing? Remember this one and that one, people whom you have slighted or avoided or treated less considerately than others because they were different superficially and you were ashamed to be identified with them? 
Have you not been glad that you are not more colored than you are? Grateful that you're not black? My anger and hate against the landlady melted. I was not better than she was, nor worse for that matter. We were both guilty of the sin of self-regard and the pride and exclusiveness by which we cut some people off from ourselves. Friends, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, but I hope that we have been able to articulate the power of the word. On the one hand, we've been reminded of what the text meant to the original listeners, those who heard it first, and then apply it across the centuries to today. But here's the critical thing before I share you one story and we conclude. Here's a critical thing, and that is that it's not the knowledge of the text, as good as that is, and it's good, it's not the knowledge of the text that's our, that's our target here. It's the power of the word to transform our lives. The power of the word combined with the Holy Spirit literally has the power to change our lives and the lives of those around us. I conclude with an observation about kindness from David French, who was a Christian attorney who represented a student group, a Christian student group at Tufts University. He said, the hearing was set for Friday, October 13th, 2000, and I was not optimistic. My client was the Tufts Christian Fellowship, a Christian student group affiliated with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a national student National Christian Student Ministry. The issue was whether TCF could stay on the Tufts University campus. The previous semester, this Tufts student judiciary had expelled it from campus in a late-night emergency meeting without providing TCF with notice or any opportunity to be heard. What campus crime did TCF commit that required an emergency expulsion Well, it had applied its statement of faith to exclude a gay student from leadership because she did not agree with the group's traditional Christian stance on sexual morality. They didn't exclude her from leadership because she was lesbian. They knew about her sexual orientation and included her in the group from the first days of her freshman year, but because she did not share the group's theological views about sex. To put it plainly, TCF, like any expressive organization, wished to be led by people who shared its values. This is a fundamental bedrock principle of expressive association. Should campus regulations require an LGBT group to be open to leaders who, for example, oppose gay marriage? That would be absurd. But if I was defending a bedrock principle of expressive association, why was I pessimistic about the hearing? He says, Tufts is a private university. The First Amendment did not protect TCF. Our task was to persuade a student judiciary that TCF had not violated the university's rules and to appeal to the university's commitment to diversity and academic freedom to convince them to keep TCF on campus. Even worse, the student judiciary was an elected body, and many of the candidates had run on the platform of tossing TCF off campus. Tensions were high, hateful anti-Christian chalkings had covered the sidewalks, and we knew that we were walking into a protest outside the hearing room doors. I was not, however, prepared for what happened next. TCF had dozens of members, but the group's student leaders asked them to stay at a house off campus and pray rather than walk with them to the hearing. We didn't want to exacerbate tensions. 
Instead, I led, led a small band of students, four leaders and one witness, into the student center and towards the hearing room. Everything was dark. Protesters had turned out lights. They filled the hall. Some had candles. Some just stood in darkness. Several walked up menacingly to the TCF student leaders and glared at them, their faces inches away. We tried to hurry through the crowd to get to the hearing room, but when we tried to enter, we were told to leave. The student judges weren't ready yet. So we stood outside the room, huddled in a corner, in the dark, surrounded by a wall of angry protesters. I tried to act unconcerned, but it was a deeply intimidating moment. One of the young TCF leaders started visibly shaking. When we were finally allowed in the hearing room, the proceedings immediately felt like a kangaroo court. The the case against TCF was full of falsehoods. The judiciary broke its own rules to permit activists to speak against the group when it was only actual witnesses that were supposed to testify. By the time Jonathan, TCF student leader, stood up to speak, he had been through an ordeal. He walked to class through anti-Christian chalkings. He had just endured physical intimidation, and now he heard an avalanche of false claims. How did he respond, David says? He said, I'll never forget the moment. He turned to the student who brought the claims against TCF and said that TCF would not say one word against her. He said that the leaders loved her and mourned their loss of friendship. They harbored no bitterness against her. He then turned to the student judiciary and in a quiet but firm voice said that TCF had not violated university policy and that he would defend TCF's place on campus, that if Tufts' commitment to academic freedom and diversity meant anything... That meant including a group committed to the principles of the historic Orthodox Christian faith. After Jonathan's brief presentation, a TCF student leader named Nicole spoke next. She fought back tears, and like Jonathan, she first addressed the complaining students. She expressed deep regret for the division and pain, but she also turned to the student judiciary and expressed deep conviction that the university should respect her faith and her freedom. Every student leader did this. Every TCF witness did this. There was never a syllable of malice or anger addressed at the student who was attempting to toss them off campus. The hearing lasted almost eight full hours, and as the hours passed by, I could see a visible change in the student judges. They went from stone-faced or scowling at the TCF students to confused and then somewhat irritated at the activists opposing TCF. Not everyone softened. As the campus activists watched the case slip away, they got more angry. Some shouted. Their closing arguments were angry and contemptuous. The Tufts evangelicals were bigots, and bigots had no place on campus. The student judges rendered their decision on Monday. I had left Tufts and was back home in Ithaca, New York. Uh, David says I taught at Cornell Law School at the time. He said, I'll never forget Jonathan's phone call. He read the decision to me on the phone. He said, we won. The judiciary convicted the group of a minor technical violation of campus rules, but then voted unanimously to keep TCF on campus. It even said that TCF offered a valuable campus voice. And David concludes this way. He says, I'm not telling this story to make the case that kindness always works. Indeed, it didn't work to win over TCF's opponents. Moreover, it would have been imperative for TCF to treat its opponents with respect and decency, even if it had lost. 
because kindness isn't a tactic. It's a command. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today for the power of your word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our pathway. And Lord, as we've applied these principles to your word, we realize that your word is indeed powerful. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that its power includes knowledge but moves beyond knowledge to the transformation of our lives and those around us. In Jesus' name.